Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. Today I'm going to be presenting you with another episode based around a film today, a film review, and it's based around a Netflix film that only came out at the end of uh, 2020 on the streaming service, and it's already really earned a lot of acclaim already. Uh, I think this is one to watch for the Oscars in terms of the amount of nominations that it gets and it's one that is very oscar worthy in the sense very oscar bait worthy uh, because of the nature of the film it's a movie about the movies uh, and they always seem to do well at the oscars be they winning them or they just get nominated for them they do quite well in general but yeah this film stars gary oldman and Amanda Seyfried, Charles Dance, and many other names in there, but specifically Gary Oldman, who obviously you will know for his performance as Winston Churchill in Darkest Hour from 2017, and all you Harry Potter fans out there will know him as Sirius Black in the Harry Potter franchise from The Prisoner of Azkaban onwards. But this film is about, like I said, is a movie about the movies. It's set during the 19... a mixture between the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, and it's all about... Herman J. Mankiewicz, and the film itself is called Mank. So obviously, based on his last name, and that's what people used to call Herman J. Mankiewicz for short, Mank. Uh, and he was a humble screenwriter, <laughs> playwright turned screenwriter, and he wrote, or at least he was credited for, partly writing the screenplay for Orson Welles's classic film that everybody who studied film at some point in their lives or even just has been introduced to it in some respect knows of and that is the 1941 film citizen kane now we have gary oldman portraying mank uh, and we actually do get to see uh, someone portray orson wells in this uh, the actor tom burke who anyone who's the fan a fan of the crown uh, or the adapt TV adaptation of J.K. Rowling's Strike novels. Uh, he plays he plays parts in those TV series, uh, and he's only in them slightly, a little bit for the Crown. I think he's only in one episode, but uh, he does a brilliant job at portraying Orson Welles. I think, I mean, some people might argue that oh, it's you know, it'll never be Orson Welles. Well, it, of course, it never will be. But I think his voice, based on the trailer alone, got me thinking. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. that He actually sounds, he doesn't sound exactly like him, but he sounds very close to him. Uh, so that's Tom Burke there portraying Orson Welles. And he, like, in the trailer, he's like, Meg, Meg, it's Orson Welles. And, you know, obviously that's the really rubbish impress impression of Orson Welles. But uh, he makes a small appearance here and there in the film. There is a scene between Gary Oldman's Mank and Tom Burke's version of Orson Welles. They do have a bit of a slammy match of words at one point, uh, but he makes sort of reappearances throughout the film. But the film itself, as it's titled, is called Mank, and it's based around the character portrayed by Gary Oldman. Uh, he didn't have to go for as much prosthetic work as he did in Darkest Hour. He, he mostly just costume, really, and a bit of makeup, I really, and hairstyling. Uh, but I think this is definitely, like I said, it's definitely one to, it's definitely one to say go up there for the Oscar nominations, whether it'll win something, who knows, but it's definitely starting to add more to the, this idea that the streaming services are producing more award-worthy content uh, than the actual studio systems themselves. So this is a Netflix film, uh, and again, there's another Netflix film coming out this year, later this year at some point, uh, called uh, Malcolm and Marie, which has got... Uh, David Washington, and uh, who I think was in Tenet, and Zendaya. I love Zendaya. She's a brilliant actress. 
them too. Uh, it's, it's a film that was filmed during the restrictions of lockdown and they bubbled together, but it was one of the first sort of fully full length film, feature length films that has been made in the lockdown scenario uh, with restrictions and such and to be properly released and finally put out there. Uh, but obviously that's a contender, I would say, for the Oscars. And again, that's a Netflix film, much like Mank is. Uh, and ironically, the thing I noticed about the two films I've just mentioned, so Malcolm and Marie and Mank, is they're both black and white films. There seem to be also a resurgence in black and white cinema. And people seem to be liking it a lot more. Like, for instance, the Disney Plus TV show that's coming onto Disney Plus now, uh, WandaVision, so uh, Scarlet Witch, or Wanda and Vision, their own little TV Disney Plus TV series, which is going to set up some films in the MCU later on down the line. Uh, there's parts of that that are black and white as well, and that's aimed at a younger audience. So I feel black and white, whilst for a while it was a little bit, un it wasn't cool for younger people, but now it's considered to be very on trend then. Like we, we've had the likes of The Lighthouse as well. The artist did well back in the day, but I'll come back to that later. But Sticking back to the review of Mank, this is a black and white, in my opinion, a black and white masterpiece. Uh, it's, like I said, it's set in the golden age of Hollywood, based around MGM, because it's all, although a lot of this is based on, it's the similar thing of, it's based on true events and real people, but there's a load, there's a few fictitious pieces placed within the plot throughout, uh, just to sort of have a bit of creative licensing and for dramatic purposes. But largely, a lot of, you know, the people in it are real. So, for instance, obviously, Mank is real. And his, more interestingly, Lily Collins, uh, an actress, she plays Rita Alexander, who is Mank's secretary. Uh, she actually uh, is the real-life inspiration for the name Susan Alexander Kane uh, from the film Citizen Kane, uh, which is a fun little fact which I discovered in my little researchings. But, uh, you know... That just shows, you know, that's a little bit of real history, but that's not something that's mentioned in the film. But like I said, it's a black and white film. We're focused around the MGM studio, so we do get the likes of Louis B. Mayer, who uh, the actor, his name is Arliss Howard. And whilst I'm, I'm not an expert on Louis B. Mayer, I only know roughly what he looks like. I think he did a pretty good job in the sense, you know, really bringing that studio head feel to it and you know the man in charge you know who's the boss uh, and it really because Mank like many things that are looking back because there seems to be a trend as well we're looking back at Hollywood with this cursory eye of oh that's not quite as squeaky clean as people might have thought it was back in the day whereas now we're sort of taking a look under the magnifying glass and seeing all the dirty grave mistakes and issues and problematic things about the studio system in terms of be it the way it was run uh, be it the way that it was connected you know the way things ended up being connected to politics a lot of the time because a, a large part of the story for Mank I'll say now is a movie about a man who writes a movie script so it's a movie about the movies and the movie industry but there's a lot of politics involved at one point where it actually really sort of you know it shows a connection between uh, the studios of MGM and the run for mayor of California in that year that it's in the years that it's set so well particularly in the flashback sequences in the th in the 1930s 
And there's a lot of tension between them and obviously Mank, who's Mank is portrayed as being a very laid back, but very, you know, for speaking, forward think, thinking, well, not forward thinking, but quite a out there kind of guy. And he doesn't shy away from the difficult subject matters in the sense that he'll be the one to point the elephant out in the room, especially if, if he's consumed a lot of alcohol, uh, which at one point in a uh, little, so spoiler alert for you guys who haven't watched this, but it's only a little detail, but in one scene he makes it, he doesn't get invited to a, a big party with a load of uh, studio based people, actors, actresses, and uh, Charles Dance's character, uh, William Randolph Hearst, who's actually a real person, again, uh, newspaper businessman slash politician. Uh, he, uh, they're all there, Louis B. Mayer. They're all looking at him as if he's off his trolley, which he is, because uh, he's blind drunk at this point. And it's, it's the decline of a man who's got the creative genius behind him in his terms of his writing ability but at the same time you can just see it's all going to go downhill from here and the film itself really it's, it's very strange so if anyone's seen citizen kane it's very similar because it's directed by david fincher and what david fincher has done here is very clever because he's not only is he telling a story about the man who wrote citizen kane he's telling a story there's a line of dialogue which i think is very good because it says um, it's impossible to tell, a, to tell a man's life story in the space of two hours. So you have to take liberties or something along the lines of that. But the point being is that is literally what's happening in this film. Telling a man's almost a man's life story almost in the space of two hours, except what we're really doing is we're just looking at a portion of his life uh, or two portions because we keep flicking between him in a bed with his, in bed rest with his leg up because he's had an accident he's been in an accident a car accident and he's in bed on bed rest but he's also still writing and working on citizen kane the script for citizen kane and then we keep flashing back to kind of what brought him to that moment but also not sort of the things that are leading up to this moment and him writing the script and eventually the script being finished and the, obviously we get filled in with the fact that he won the Oscar jointly with Orson Welles, Mank did. And I really do think, you know, it's an interesting one to see, really, because we see what I would assume is a recreation of an interview with Herman outside his house accepting his Oscar because neither of them turned up to the awards ceremony. Orson Welles, because he was too busy doing some other shooting somewhere else at the time. And then, obviously, Herman J. Mankiewicz was just, I don't know, I, I feel because of the fact that he had to share the writing credit, he didn't really want to have to answer any awkward questions on the night, in the, in the moment, in the heat of the moment. He might have said something that he regretted, possibly, but you can read lots into that. But I do find this story, it's structured very much like Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane, you go back and forth, well, back and forth, but you're always traveling through time. It's a mishmash, as one of the characters says, I think Orson Welles even says it. It's a mishmash of events and moments from a man's life. It's it's mad and it's brilliant, but will people watch it? And lots of people to this day will say, oh, Citizen Kane, it's boring. It's boring. In terms of filmmaking of its time, 
it was revolutionary. It's groundbreaking. To some film fans now, it's still a masterpiece. And then to the uncultured eye, or just not even uncultured, just the eye of someone who doesn't really look in deep into the deeper meaning of the film or analyze it a lot, you do get the sense that, oh, they've just watched it and taken it completely at face value. The fact that it's just a stream of moments from someone's life, it's just a drama. But to be honest, that same person probably wouldn't enjoy It's a Wonderful Life because It's a Wonderful Life essentially is basically Citizen Kane with a little bit of a Christmas Carol mixed in there and obviously Christmas uh, with Jimmy Stewart running along madly in the snow. <laughs> but I just think with Citizen Kane, it is a drama. Like I've said this before, if you don't get drama, if you're not willing to sit through a film and see it to the bitter end or the sweet end, depending on how you feel about the film, you're not really going to get the best out of it. If And that's fine, because if comedy is your thing, that's fine. Musicals, action, thriller, horror, that's fine. But pure drama is what you get from Citizen Kane. And ultimately, from the studio system, that's what you got a lot of the time. A lot a lot more words rather than action. And in this case, you know, it's it's a man's life story, and it's stitched together across many many flashbacks put together uh, and i can't really go into de- i'll go into detail about citizen kane on a separate episode i'm sure but mank it's a little bit more simple compared to citizen kane and we have so we're always flicking between the 1940s when he's writing the screenplay and the 1930s so in the build up to i want to say build up to the second world war uh, because because it, it's pre or during the first, uh, the first, the Second World War as well, because of the 40s setting as well. But we've got that nice contrast between, it's not very big time jump, it's only really within the space of a decade, but we do get that sense of tonal shift of the chirpy, bright Gary Oldman as Mank. Uh, he's very free-flowing and he, you know, he's the master of his own destiny and he, he can do what he wants and he seems to be very popular with everyone. He's a man that is always good to know in Hollywood and he's part of the main group of writers in Hollywood because in the studio system, scripts, although they get credited as one person, a lot of the time for studio system films, a big group of writers will contribute to it. So, for instance, you'll get someone who writes writes the main plot, someone who does the characters, someone who works on the dialogue, you know, a big team of people. Whilst nowadays we have some um, one writer who does everything and then you'll get like some script readers and script editors. It's the same principle, except the only thing is that everybody writes something and only one person gets credited. Whereas nowadays it's a case of one person writes it, people edit it and suggest things, but essentially it's still the writer's work, even though you've got a myriad of voices still talking to you through the script. It, back in the studio system, you'd need to sort of expect it says written by so-and-so on the screen. So Herman J. Mankiewicz, it was probably not. It was probably written by someone else. But in the case of obviously Citizen Kane, it definitely was written by him. And even though it says co-written with Orson Welles, Orson Welles is mainly because of his like creative directive ideas that he wanted. And of course, at the time, Orson Welles was only 24 at the time. And he was really forward thinking in the sense he really knew what he wanted. He wanted to do what he wanted and he wasn't going to take any rubbish from any studio heads. He was going to have complete creative control. And he was signed up with RKO Pictures at the time. And obviously, Mank was with MGM. So there was a bit of friction there. And that's basically how the story sort of plays out. There's this battle between Awesome Wells and Mank at one point, then Mank against the rest of the studio system, even though he thinks everything he's doing is completely on board with 
of like the way he's thinking. He he's got one train of thought, and everyone else is like on another planet to him. But he's a very it's a great performance by Gary Oldman. Like I said, it's you know he's an alcoholic through the majority of it. He loves his drink, and uh, who wasn't back in the day? But I. I love the black and white cinematography. I love the look of it. It looks very classy, very classic. It's not in, in Academy aspect ratio, so 4-3, so where it's got the black bars at either side of your screen. It's not like that. It is widescreen, but it's a beautifully shot film. And I, I've said this before, black and white can sometimes strip away all the distractions that you get usually from a film that are presented to you in the form of color or anything that's color related and it can really help you focus on the drama of it all and really enhance you because i feel that if mank was in color i I don't know i think i would have enjoyed it because of because i i personally enjoy period pieces and stuff from the golden age and i love looking at that period again and having it revisited it's great i know it's been done lots of times but i love looking at it but I think if it, if it was in color, I don't think the story would be as captivating. So the dark moments in the film are reflected also in the lack of color. And although it's black and white throughout, we get that nice contrast, well, not contrast, lovely sense of togetherness with the idea that this is a dark moment in the film, which is represented by the way the image is, and also because of the way the performances are being brought to us by Gary Oldman, Charles Dance. Charles Dance, in fact, is a veteran British actor, and he's just so, he's so good. Like, you know, he, he's still working to this day. I think I want to say he must be in his 80s, 70s, 80s by now, um, at the time of the recording of this episode. But I just, he's a brilliant talent. I loved him in the TV version of And Then There Were None that was on BBC in the UK of the Agatha Christie novel. He was brilliant in that as General Wargrave. But in this, he's just as stern, just as, you know, high and mighty. And if you mess with him, you've messed with the wrong person. But yeah, like I said, it's got a brilliant, like I say, he's one of the many brilliant casting choices. We've got Gary Oldman as the centerpiece of this in the crown jewels. Uh, we've also got Amanda Seyfried, who comes in as a Hollywood starlet, Marion Davies. I haven't got the, I, I've forgotten the actress's name, but the wife character in this is of of Mank. So Mank's wife, Sarah, or as he likes to refer to her as poor Sarah, is really, it's a recurring gag, that one. But it's, it's such a good performance in the sense that she, there's a lovely scene between them where they're very, it's shot very simply. There's nothing sensational. They're not having too much of a, like a shout, shouting, slamming match at all. But they're, you know, poor Sarah is the epitome of that relationship. He insults her with that, but they love each other really. And she stands by him. And I think, again, Mank is another example of women stand standing by their husbands in the industry. So for instance, you get that similar feeling in a film, uh, the Hitchcock film. So Hitchcock starring Anthony Hopkins and Helen Mirren. Although the film is about Alfred Hitchcock, the film mostly centers around the uh, the relationship between Hitchcock and his wife Alma. And Alma proves that behind every great film director, every great man, there is a woman. And that old saying that, that, that we've heard time and time again these days, it's the same for Mank. Although Mank it focuses a lot more on the studio system and a lot more of the wider birth of it all. I because I, it's a much longer film than Hitchcock, but you get that same when the relationship between Mank and Sarah, you get that sense that yeah, there's a woman behind every great man. Because there's a, a lovely speech where she gives, oh, I will, I go through all these, I get called poor Sarah, I, I'm insulted, you know, there's jokes about me, blah de blah. 
but she's very, I'm standing by you. I'm your wife. I just want to see. And she, there's a lovely line where it goes, I just want to see what happens when it all goes wrong <laughs> or something to that effect, because it genuinely is a, it's a love-hate relationship. And I feel that's the case with most of these classic Hollywood directors or directors in the studio system. You get to see the director, the auteur, the man, and then the wife is always supportive. But at the same time, you know that she's the one who's sort of spurring them on. And if anything, they're in it for the thrill and the ride as much as they are to love the person back. But that's sort of generally the comparison you can see between Mank and Hitchcock. But yeah, like I said, there's a lot of big cast... All great talent in there. Uh, Amanda Seyfried, as I said, she's a Hollywood starlet. She's typically very much a bit like any stereotypical Hollywood starlet from the era, from the 30s and the 40s. Like the, and it's just a brilliant, you know, sort of ensemble cast. As much as it's about one man, it's brilliant. So, as I said, highlight for me the black and white cinematography, the fact it's all black and white. You get to really see the emotion in the performances come out from this lovely film that's been edited in such a way as well. This is my next point. David Fincher as a director, you know, he's brilliant. He's done he's done Seven, he's done Zodiac, Gone Girl, brilliant director. And you think, oh, he's very, you know, he does things in the moment, very contemporary of the time, nine times out of 10. But this one is, I would say, a very good period piece, which I, I couldn't see David Fincher doing a period piece, but this is really pitch perfect throughout. And the editing process as well, what the creative decisions that David Fincher took to make this film, that you can see throughout, if you watch the film very carefully, uh, there's little ticks and pops on the soundtrack. Uh, so you can hear the little hums and hisses and ticks and pops on the soundtrack. Uh, you can see little marks and stuff on the screen itself. So a bit like an actual celluloid film would be. I believe this was shot on digital, but it's been edited in such a way that it looks like it's been shot on film. And it's been sat, I think he even said himself, sat in a vault waiting to be restored. You know, the way it's been done, it's presented beautifully, like the styling of the title. So it's a Netflix production at the beginning and it's done like an old Hollywood uh, movie. It's very meta in the sense that uh, is so metacritical on itself it very it emulates the films it's talking about and at the same time it's still enjoyable as a film that we can watch today with with views and a perspective of someone from our generation looking back on an older generation and you know i think it's beautifully done the soundtrack itself is is amazing like it's full of jazz and pure orchestrated glory i i just it's very soothing just to listen to some of it as well and also it's very classical at the same time so again that's another sort of tick point the the look the sound and I mentioned sound again because if you listen to the actual audio quality, so the way the dialogue sounds, it, it, it does sound like it is mono. It's like a mono recording or even a stereo recording. It sounds very much akin to the way old black and white movies of the 20s, 30s, early 20s, uh, the early talkies in the 20s, how they all sounded. It's not surround sound. It's not 5.1 surround sound. It's very kind of flat, if that makes sense, but it has that extra attention to detail. So you've got the look of a, a film that needs to be restored digitally that's been shot on celluloid, even though it hasn't. You've got that, the little pops and ticks and stuff in the soundtrack itself, classic scoring, and on top, and obviously all the period production design, which is just something else to behold. It's brilliant. I absolutely love it. And, you know, there's some brilliant performances and good jokes throughout. Like, it's very 
authentic to the period. We even have, uh, there's talk at one point of the studios moving to Florida, or just out of Los Angeles, out of Hollywood. Uh, and obviously, uh, there's a nice exchange between Mank and one of the studio heads at MGM. They're discussing with a, I think it's a jobbing actor. Uh, he's like, oh, I, I just need a bit of money. It's a really simple scene. He just needs a bit of money. And he goes to the security guard. Gary Oldman goes to the security guard. Oh, just give us a dime. <laughs> give, give us a bit of money, a dollar or something. And, and he's, oh, I need a bit more. It's just, it's nice little funny, heartwarming interactions like that that really solidify the nostalgia for that time and the sort of happy, squeaky clean time that we're always been presented with throughout this, uh, like the so many years leading up to the making of this film. And obviously the main point is we're looking at the darker side of Hollywood. That seems to be a recurring theme throughout the entire film. And all these new films that come out these days, there's a cursory eye and Mank itself is not nothing short of a brilliant film in terms of a historical artifact, like a representation of a historic place and time. And it's just, there's so many, there's another shot uh, I'd just like to point out of Mank and he, it's faded together with a clock. So it's, you know, times are ticking uh, and there's a clock, square clock face. I think it's used in the trailer as well. There's a square clock face around him as he's editing. I think he's editing something or writing something. It's just it, the way the images are faded together, it looks so good. And I think maybe I might be wrong. When they filmed this, it looks like they've used a smoke machine to really add that misty, murky, mysterious tone to the film throughout, which is, you know, it's very good and it's very atmospheric. It's great. And like I said, period costume and, you know, cars and makeup and hair, all perfect in my opinion. And, you know, it's just, I, I can't say much more about it, really. In terms of rating, I, I said this on a post I did a while ago, personally, uh, that I'd rate this five stars because I enjoyed it that much. Obviously, there are some people who would say, mm, it was all right, it wasn't that bad. But I think for me personally, as a film lover and a lover of films, uh, I know other people who love films would rate this a bit lower. They'd probably say about three or four. I, for me personally, because it's got, it ticks a load of boxes for me, I'd give it a good five stars. If I was to give it anything less, I'd give it a four. But I personally really enjoyed this. It was a really enjoyable watch from start to finish. And again, it's of its it's depicting a certain time period, which is amazing to take a second look at and you know really look at how things worked. And it's probably not as intrusive as it could be because there's lots of films which do that kind of intrusive inspection and look at the much much darker side to Hollywood which you know again those are brilliant as well but as like a not a light relief but something that's traditionally biopic like and very classical in its presentation and it's got a lot of artistry behind it in terms of the production design black and white photography and even the performances as well even though they're meant to be realistic they're very correct and perfect for their time but like i said it's up to you guys if you liked mank let me know i'm sure i'll put out a question out there on the social media on the instagram and the twitter pages but if you've enjoyed it let me know if you didn't enjoy it let me know as well like what were your thoughts on mank like did you feel that gary oldman did a brilliant job as the drunk screenwriter or do you think it could have been someone else it could have been just as good with anyone before 
I finish, I've got some last minute things to mention to you. So I've got some films that you'd like to watch if you enjoyed Mank. Films about films. We've got Trumbo. Uh, it's about Dalton Trumbo, the screenwriter and the artist, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, the black and white silent film released in 2011, which again, highly recommend. And then there's Singing in the Rain with 1952, which although, yes, it's in colour, uh, it's not quite the same as Mank, uh, but I'd recommend this one to you because like the artist, the artist looks at the sort of evolution from the silent era into the talky era, so where sound really became more popular in cinema, and that's what we know about it today. Like, sound is so crucial to things we know and love today about cinema. It shows that transition, whereas the artist was done quite, if you pardon the pun, artistically, uh, with, in black and white, in 4-3 Academy ratio, done to it all completely in silent format until the very end. The story of Singing in the Rain, it's a musical, it's feel-good, it's got a load of songs which were already known at the time, but put together a bit like a jukebox musical would be today. Uh, or you would experience from like say the 80s but it's very much the same story then the artist is essentially the same story as singing in the rain you're looking at how the talkies took over from the silent era except you've got sound throughout the entire film whereas the artist is an actual silent film about the decline of silent films which i find quite funny very extra meta and of course it got lots of awards and nominations uh that year that it was released uh which to be honest is no surprise uh, the same with mank i feel when mank when the award season comes for mank i feel that it's a contender for all these big award shows that, that often get the recognition for these kind of films but singing in the rain like i said that's a good one especially if you like musicals 1952 i can't do an episode on a, a film about a screenwriter without mentioning adaptation the 2002 charlie kaufman film uh, starring nicholas cage in a dual role honestly it's really funny it's really entertaining heartbreaking and just you know there's so many emotions it's a very human story that one so if you like your story about stories about screenwriters be my guest check out adaptation that's a brilliant one nick cage does a great job in that uh, again screenwriter based if you want to look at that sim the similar relation to obviously we've what we looked at mank we've looked at uh, adaptation as i just said trumbo from 2015 that is like i said about dalton trumbo the one of the many blacklisted hollywood screenwriters and it looks at the 1950s and problems and issues with communism and this the red scare of the cold war and such and that's a good one to watch as well like i said uh, other films about the movie business sunset boulevard if you like your film noir that's a good one because again we look at a silent movie star who was in a prime who's now been chucked aside by the talkies and sound pictures and there's some lovely there's a lovely scene uh, with actual real life silent movie stars and also directors as well making cameo and brief appearances in the film as themselves in terms of mank you get lots of appearances and portrayals of people like daryl f zanuck uh, and many other studio heads from mgm and the likes of warner brothers all the different studios you get that in here as well in sunset boulevard but they're a little bit more covert and a little bit you have to sort of spot them like spot the the famous person <laughs> uh, from that era if you're up on your 1950s hollywood stars uh, with the brilliant gloria swanson i can't say any more about that one it's a brilliant film brilliant film noir uh, again hail caesar if you like the the 1940s 1950s setting or 30s 
setting that is of Mank or even Trumbo as well. Uh, if you like that sort of aesthetic, then you'll like Hail Caesar, especially if you're a fan of the Coen brothers. In my personal opinion, I'm not a fan of Hail Caesar. I don't mind it. It's okay, but it's got lots of good set pieces, which are very in with that time period of the 1930s, 40s, that sort of golden age aesthetic. Uh, and again, uh, there's a, the, and then there's two more that I would highly recommend. If you're into Disney and you're into like how a film came to be, Saving Mr. Banks from 2013 with Tom Hanks as Walt Disney and Emma Thompson as the infamous P.L. Travers, the author of the original Mary Poppins books. She is a force to be reckoned with and it's a brilliant I think it's a brilliant story, really lovely, like brilliantly told story through both the language of cinema, through the way it's edited, the costume design, everything. And it's just quite heartwarming and quite sad, really. And also, if you like Hollywood as well, if you like looking at your Hollywood sites and stuff like that, you'll enjoy it as well. Uh, the foot, the colour does everything for it. The time period, like I feel these films that look back at the movies, they really do nail it when it comes to production design. So Saving Mr. Banks is a good one. And I again couldn't go amiss without mentioning obviously towards the end of the classic Hollywood era like more towards the new Hollywood movement so 1969 I can't help but mention Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the Quentin Tarantino film which I know is again is very divisive very people don't like it some people like it other people really hate it uh, I personally love it because of the production design and the setting of it all but that's just my opinion I'll probably do a review of that one soon as well but that one I love the use of music, the attention to detail in terms of, like I said, the production design. The cars in that film are just stunning. So Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if you want to trip back to the to the late 60s, why not? Uh, but yeah, so that's Trumbo, The Artist, Singing in the Rain, Adaptation, Sunset Boulevard, Saving Mr. Banks, Hail Caesar, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And all to cap it off, watch Mank. That's all I'll say, guys. Get on your Netflix account, watch Mank. And that's all I have to say for now, guys. So um, thank you very much for listening to me. And I look forward to bringing you another episode next week, same time as well. And thank you for listening. See you later, guys.